always enjoyed some of these special days uh, in the church year, uh, Palm Sunday and other special days of remembrance like this. There's something kind of comfortable about these traditions that we uh, practice each year as a church. And, and there's something about the kids coming up and waving the palms every year and singing you know, some of the same songs and even reading some of the same passages that I don't know, there's something kind of warm and good about all of that. But I think there are also a couple of dangers that come when we repeat traditions, when we do things over and over again. One of those, I'm sure you all have heard the, the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. You ever thought about where that phrase comes from? Well, I decided last week to look, see where it comes from. Most believe it comes from one of Aesop's fables. It's actually a little statement right at the end of one of them in an English translation. Here's the, here's the fable. When first the fox saw the lion, he was terribly frightened and ran away and hid himself in the wood. Next time, however, he came near to the king of beasts. He stopped at a safe distance and watched him pass by. The third time they came near one another, the fox went straight up to the lion and passed the time of day with him, asking him how his family were and when he should have the pleasure of seeing him again. Then turning his tail, he parted from the lion without much ceremony. Familiarity breeds contempt. You know, one of the definitions of contempt is disregard for something that should be taken into account. And I think that's the usage here in this fable. It's the fact that something that was powerful and something that was, you know, magnificent before him and threatening, in a way, uh, because of familiarity, he kind of lost sight of that became something common to him. And, you know, we all struggle with that at times. Things we repeat over and over again, they become so familiar we kind of stop looking. We assume we know them and we understand it all, and so we don't look very closely anymore. Or that other danger, just like that little fox, that sometimes we're standing before something that really is magnificent, something that's really important, and we simply don't see it because we've been there so often. We've kind of lost the majesty of this thing or the presence of the one that we stand in front of. It's one of our dangers. And I think that the gospel writers remind us that this is something that we need to pay attention to. Don't allow this to become so familiar that you missed this story, the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Believe that because this is one of the stories that all four gospel writers tell us. And there really aren't that many that all four of them tell us, but all four t choose to tell us this story and draw attention to it. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to look at today. In Matthew's Gospel, he dedicates about one-third of his Gospel to telling the story of this last week of Jesus' earthly life before the crucifixion. Really, he, he kind of has a wide-angle lens on Jesus' public ministry. And then when he comes to this last week, he pulls us in and wants us to sharpen our attention on all the details and pay close attention to it. Read this carefully. Think about it. It's what we're invited to do. So, so be careful not to just pass by without paying attention as we so easily could do. But I think there's a second danger similar to that. You know, it's that idea of we see what we expect to see. When you expect to see something, that's what you'll always find. And again, something familiar is especially true. We've come to expect certain things today. There are certain things we expect our attention to be drawn to, certain things we expect to be said. And I'm really not going to say anything much different than probably what you expect. I'm going to go back to that old story and look at it. But again, I would ask that maybe we look at it with fresh eyes. 
Maybe sometimes we're so guided by these glasses of expectation that we have on that we just stop seeing. We stop really paying attention. I've told the story before of um, when my daughter was young that uh, freshman year in high school, she went out for track. And I always have loved sports. My daughter showed no interest whatsoever in sports, but she said, I'd go out for track, and I was excited. Kara's going to go run track. And she was incredibly good at it. As a freshman, her coaches told us she ran the 400, and they were so impressed with her. They just kept telling us, oh, she's just natural at this. For someone who's never run, she's just incredible at it. Really got to do it. A few weeks into it, Kara came to me and said, I just really don't like track. Don't really enjoy it. And I was like, but you're good at it. You have to do it. Yeah, that whole can't catch my breath, sweating thing. I'm just really not that into the whole thing. Don't really enjoy it that much. I was so disappointed. I mean, I tried and tried to keep getting her to go that way, but she could have cared less. Her interest in sports were guys who played sports. Beyond that, she just didn't really care. <laughs> but I love sports. I wanted her to be into it. Later, when my daughter was in college one time, um, she had a book of a bunch of stories she'd written. She was an English lit major, and she had a, a book of a bunch of stories. And I was sitting down at the kitchen table reading through these stories, story after story that she had written. It just brought tears to my eyes. I mean, literally started crying. What are these stories? Because of the beauty of the stories she has written, the insight in those stories. I just, I mean, I was sitting there thinking, I had no idea my daughter was such a remarkable writer. I just had no idea. And it struck me in that moment, well, maybe because I wasn't looking to see if my daughter was a wonderful writer. Just like back then when she was an athlete, I wanted that to be her story, because that was my story. Not that I was a great athlete, but I wanted it to be my story that she loves sports. And sometimes I'm, I'm looking at her through that lens and saying, well, well, how do you fit? Who are you through that lens? And miss looking through another lens that if I looked through, I would have said, oh, how beautiful, how wonderful, how, how unique God has created you and how good he's made you. Because I just didn't pick up those glasses. Didn't choose to look through those lens, or many others, I'm sure, if I would have picked them up and looked. Sometimes we have certain lenses on, certain expectations, and we come to a story and it's all we can see. You know how it is. Our expectations, all of us, they're shaped by our own story, by our expectations, our desires, our fears, our longings. Our story shapes kind of how we look at things. And I'm sure that was true of the people that were standing along the road that day. The people who were standing along that road who were watching Jesus go by in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We know of some of those people who were there. Twelve disciples were part of that group. And we know just a little before in Jericho, Jesus had actually told them that he is going to Jerusalem to be crucified and to die. And he'll be raised again to new life. They knew that. When they were standing there looking at Jesus, what do you think they were thinking as he rode by? What were their expectations? What were they hoping? We know that when he first told them that, their, their next conversation was about what's our role going to be in the kingdom and what's our position going to be? Is that what they were thinking about, wondering what comes next? How does this affect us? I don't know. But I'll bet their expectations shaped what they saw in front of them. We know that this was a time of the Passover in Jerusalem. Many, many people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. A time when they're thinking about that coming Messiah, about God's rescue and deliverance. And God's rescue and deliverance from these hated Romans who, under whose oppression we lived. 
I imagine that a lot of those people saw Jesus walk by and heard the stories about him and heard how he seemed to be the one who fit the description that the prophets had told us about. But all they thought was, this is a Savior that's going to free us, but maybe just free us from these Romans, restore us to a place of political prominence in the world. The blind and lame, we know, were part of that crowd. What do you think they were looking at him expecting? What were they hoping for, the sick? They've heard the stories of him healing people. And what do they want? Let me be one of those. Change my situation. Make my life better today. Roman soldiers probably standing by and watching. Some of them. Many of them there just to kind of control things as Jerusalem became full of people. What are they thinking as they look at him? This man who comes in riding on a donkey, wearing the clothes of just a common peasant. A man who, nothing really impressive about him when you looked at him. It's a borrowed donkey sitting on the borrowed cloaks of his disciples as he rides in. It's a little young donkey. What are they thinking as they watch him? These men have probably seen the great processionals of conquering Roman generals as they came into the city after conquering their enemies. Who probably saw the processionals of Caesar. What are they thinking as they look at this? Probably thinking of a bunch of kids play acting. You know, how cute. What a funny little thing that they're doing because they don't have the real thing. You know, want to be like the real thing. We know religious leaders were some of them standing by watching. What were their expectations and what were they looking for? Through the lens of their experience, they wanted someone who would in no way point out their faults, sure wouldn't challenge them. They probably looked at him and thought, this guy, this guy, thinks he's going to tell us what's true and what's right? Who in the world is he? Look at this commoner riding on a young donkey. Everybody looks at them through the lens of their own expectations and probably are limited in what they can see because of those expectations. And again, I think we have an advantage that they didn't have. We have a remarkable advantage of the fact that we are actually given direction through the gospel writers of what to pay attention to. Because we all do it, don't you? If, you? if you have an accident happen and two people come and tell you the details of that accident, you're going to get two different stories. As a counselor, I know, when I sit with two people telling me about some incident in their life, I know I'm going to get different stories from different people. Not because people are being dishonest, but because everybody experiences those events differently. We don't memorize every single detail. We can't do that. We pay attention to certain things, and we hold on to those things because in our mind, those are the important things. And some people see some things and pay attention and remember, and some people see other things of the same event, of the same situation we remember and hold on to different things. But we actually have an advantage that these people standing along the road didn't have. God, through his Holy Spirit, inspired these gospel writers to draw our attention to certain details, certain things that took place. Wants us to think about and remember those things and draw our attention towards them. These are things out of these many details that could be told, pay attention to these. These are really important things. And one thing we see as we look at this story is, is one thing that God clearly wants us to pay attention to is this is a story of glaring contrasts. This is one who's riding into Jerusalem in a way that the prophets have predicted that clearly says he's the promised Messiah. He is the coming king, the one Israel has been waiting for. He's going to be a king like no other king. He's the one. And he's riding on this little young donkey. Why in the world that? Again, dressed like a commoner, sitting on borrowed clothes. It must have been quite a sight, sitting on this young donkey, this grown man. It must have looked a little odd. 
you know, riding in. Imagine the cloaks kind of hanging, these kind of makeshift saddle that's been put on their backs, and he's riding and sitting on it. It must have been quite a sight. And everyone's throwing their cloaks and branches on the road and waving their palms, which is a way of receiving a king. It was a common way that they showed homage to royalty as they came in to a victor. In fact, waving the palms was a sign of, of national victory and national pride. This isn't just a king. This is Israel's king. It's the promised one who's come. Yet look at him. Glaring contrast. But Matthew even tells us here's why that happened. This isn't something that just was decided now. This is something that was decided long ago, hundreds of years ago and probably from the beginning of time. This way of entering, this method of coming in, it matters. It was chosen on purpose. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. And Matthew points us back to this story where Zechariah said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. He is one who's going to come in, and he is a great king, a king like none other. His reign will be larger than any other, an unending reign over everything from the very ends of the earth. That's the kind of king he's going to be. Gentle, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In fact, many think, Matthew's the only one who tells us, actually, that there seem to be two donkeys in the story, that he got a donkey and the foal of a donkey. And possibly it's because this young donkey was unbroken, and a way to lead that unbroken donkey to where you want him to go was bring his mother. Lead the mother, and the, the young follows along and goes. So maybe the reason that Jesus rode this, this young donkey is because this is an unbroken donkey. Not only young, but one that isn't ready for a rider yet. And what does Jesus do? Jesus sits on the donkey and calmly rides in. Why? Because he's the Lord over all creation. Because even this unbroken donkey submits to him and he rides into Jerusalem on it. The master of the universe, the Lord of all creation. Yet one who's like us, who's humble, who's available, who's accessible, one who isn't far beyond, but he, he seems like one of us right before us. We're even told something about his demeanor. He was gentle. This humble and gentle spirit as he rides in. Again, this, this accessibility. He's right there. He's with us is what we see. And those two things are perfectly somehow brought together in him. These incredibly rare things being brought together are somehow incredibly brought together in him. And I think these people in Jerusalem, to some degree they got it. Some degree they understood what they were seeing because they were shouting Hosanna. And Hosanna is what you say, it means save us. It really became a, eventually, initially it was a request, save us, but eventually it became words of praise. And it was just saying the one who saves us or praise the one who saves us. So they're praising him. He's the savior. He's the one they've been waiting for. But did they fully understand who was standing before him? Did they fully understand the savior that had walked in before him? Were their expectations so limited only to their own experience that they really couldn't see beyond it, just like you and I often do? So this Palm Sunday, as I, as I came to this passage today, um, this week, I thought, oh, how do you preach this again? You know, how do you know a Palm Sunday sermon? That's why Bob gave it to me, because, you know, he's done a lot of them. 
But as I came to it, I thought, how do you make this special and unique and different? And I honestly couldn't find a way for some reason this week to do that. But then it struck me, maybe that's good. Maybe that's right. It doesn't need to be unique or different. We just need to open our eyes and pay close attention to what's right before us. Just look at the story. Think about the story. What does it really say? Nothing new. Let's just come back to this beautiful story that our attention's been called to. This story of glaring contrast and ask, what's right here before us? Um, well, one thing we know, again, it's unique. As I said, he perfectly unites this power and love, this sovereignty and gentleness, this majesty and, and justice and grace. Perfectly unites them in a way that many have tried but nobody ever seems to really accomplish the way he does. Matter of fact, he so perfectly unites them that, that we really can't understand one without the other. And it's not he's, he's half king and he's kind of half servant and half gentle. He is fully both and brings them perfectly together. Look at the king who stands before us. Isaiah 9, 6-7 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Just like Zechariah said, from that time on and forever, to the very ends of the earth, he will rule over everything. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a different king. This isn't your neighbor's king. This isn't your forefather's prophet. There's something different going on here. And Jesus has always been revealing this story, but in his own unique way, that he is the ruler, the master over everything. Think about the story that we're told throughout the Gospels. He walks on water. He, he turns upside down the rules of nature. He walks on water. He heals the sick and causes the lame to walk and gives sight to the blind. He goes against, again, all those rules. Don't get in his way. He restores everything to what it's meant to be. He turns water into wine. Most of those standing around probably even heard the story of just a couple of miles away in Bethany, he had actually raised Lazarus from the death. Even death didn't have power that he couldn't control. In fact, we're even told he had power not only over the seen things of this world, but even the unseen things. Remember, he cast out demons. Even unseen spiritual forces had to submit to him. When he spoke, they had to listen. He's always been saying to us, I am a king that's unlike any king, a ruler unlike any other ruler. If we've really been listening and paying attention, it's always been being said to us. He is the Lord over creation. But he's also always been said that there's something different about this ruler in the sense that he is gentle and he's compassionate and he's humble and he's loving. It's why sometimes it's hard to see his majesty because that screams at us just as loud. Isaiah calls him a wonderful counselor, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Not only is he going to bring a rule that will have no end, he also tells us he's going to bring a peace that will have no end. Zechariah tells us he's going to take away the weapons of war from all the armies. Peace everywhere throughout our world is what he's going to bring. And again, you think of ways Jesus has revealed this is who he is throughout his story. He allows children to come to him and he treats them with love and respect like no one else. Even when others want to shoo him away, he invites them in and he sees them. 
He goes to the outcast of society and treats them as valued citizens. He feeds the hungry. He shed tears with people in grief. He stops Peter from defending him with the sword. Even his enemies, he prays that God would forgive them, even those who are trying to put him to death. And ultimately, he dies on the cross in our place, suffers the death of the, most, of the worst of criminals for us. This is a God who's always shown us that he is compassionate, that he cares, that he is gentle, and that he is humble, and that he is available to his people. The message has always been there. Look at some of the stories earlier in, in the book of Matthew that led up to this. I'll just read a little excerpt from a few of them. Matthew chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And then he tells his disciples to be their shepherds because, again, he had compassion on them. He saw their struggles and he cared about them. The story of the fishes and the loaves, we've all heard Matthew 15. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. These little needs, even their hunger, cares about them, wants them met. And, he, and again, this remarkable miracle of taking a, a few loaves of bread and a few fish and feeding hundreds. Right before the story of the triumphal entry, the verse right before it, it's where two blind men have been calling out to him. All these crowds that are coming in around Jesus to see him. Two blind men keep calling out and want to be healed, want, to, want his attention. And the crowds try to shut him up, you know, get him out of the way. And over the voices of the crowds, Jesus pays attention to him and hears him. And he makes his way through the crowd to these two blind men. And then we read this. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Not only made his way to him. And it wasn't just he performed this miracle to show his power. He had compassion on them. He saw them and he cared about their situation and what they were going through. And he didn't just speak and they saw. He reached down and he touched their eyes. Physically touched them as he often did. Again, this is a God who cares. This is a God who's with us, who's available to us. This is a majestic king who is ruler over everything. And he reaches down and he touches the eyes of two blind men. And what's remarkable about this is, think about it. He is on the most important mission in the history of mankind. It's coming to its culmination. He is about to be presented publicly as the promised Messiah. And right before, he reaches down and he touches the eyes of the two blind men and pays attention to them. That matters too. That's who this king is that stands before you and passes before you that day. The question for us, have we become so familiar with stories like this, especially this story, that we pass by and we don't see, that we think we know and we don't look? There is always more to learn. One of the privileges I have around here, I do premarital counseling a lot, and probably more here than the average pastor does. I get to do more premarital counseling because lots of people that age around here getting married. And really, it's one of my favorite things to do. I love doing it. And people may think that's strange because I talk about the same kind of things over and over and over again. You think, well, that would get old, you know. But one, it's new people and new stories, and I love that part of it. But the other is, honestly, it really benefits my marriage. I come back to these same things as I'm thinking about them and say them to others. I can't help but think about my marriage over and over and over again. And I tell you, I need to think about my marriage over and over and over again. It's a good thing. 
some things I need reminded of often. I need to always come back and look at it again and look at it again and say, what do I have to learn and where do I need to grow? This is a story that we are absolutely called to, to come back to again and again and look at. See, pay attention. What does it say to you? What does it mean? If this is who God is, if God is a God of this remarkable power, the God over, who is Lord over all creation, over all the universe, and God is a God who is this available to us, who comes to us and is with us, who cares that deeply about us and has compassion on us, what does that mean? What does that say to us? Don't just look through the lenses of your own expectations. And, it, and I think if you do that, you may find what you expect, but that's probably all you'll find. Try sometimes to set those aside and look at the story again. What's really there and what does it say to me? I've told you this before. Sometimes when you study Scripture, it's a wonderful thing to go to Scripture and ask, you know, about application. What should I do? You know, what's the application of this to my life? But, but sometimes we fail to start by saying, who is the God in this story? Who is he? Maybe sometimes the application is know him, know about him, understand him better. Life changes if you know him. I think sometimes we get so caught up in, well, I want to live the right Christian life, I want to do the right thing, I'm struggling with that, I just need to try harder, try harder, try harder. Maybe one of the things the story tells us is, you know how we will better follow? How we will have uh, the motivation we need to follow and to persevere? We look at who we're following. We see him and understand him. And if we see a God who's a God who loves the way he loves, and a God with the remarkable power he has over all things and authority over all things, if we see that God, not only does he have power, that's great. Life's hard sometimes. I want to be with the one who has power. But also if I look to him, I see someone who says, I have power and I care about you. I want to use that power in a way that has concern for you and loves you and is available to you. That's a remarkable thing. I want to get up and follow. If, if you sometimes wonder if you're really seeing him, then a good kind of check is what do you do when difficulty comes? Where do you look? You know, because sometimes when difficult circumstances come, then I look away from him and look somewhere else. That's a great time to say, have you really seen him? Because this is probably the time you look towards him, not away from him. But when difficulty comes many times, I don't look towards him. Uh, I need to ask questions again. There's much more to be seen. There's much more to learn, or I would probably be looking that way right now. Um, here's a great story, and I want to end with this. Turn to Lamentations chapter 3. This is a story of somebody who comes upon really, really difficult times, Jeremiah. Old people of Israel facing some of the hardest times they'll ever face. He's in one of the most difficult situations we can possibly imagine. And in the midst of this, here's what he says he finds hope in. As a pastor, and as a counselor, I sit with many people who are looking for hope. Who are in situations they want to find hope. And as they talk to me about their situation, I'm tempted a lot of times to say, I, I know what you, the kind of hope you want. You want to know that just the circumstances you're in right now will get better. That's what you want. Real soon, we'll get better. If it's through a loss, I'm, I'm tempted to just focus on telling you, well, you know what, lots of other people have gone through loss and it gets better. And it'll, it'll soon get better. 
If you've lost a job or something, well, you know, here's some things you can do to maybe find a job, and let's give you some hope you'll find a job soon. If, if life is just hard because of relationships, I'm going to say, well, here's some things to work on those relationships and improve that circumstance and make it better. And nothing wrong with that advice. I think those are all good things. But if that's the only hope I turn them towards, if that's the only thing I turn their attention towards and say there's hope in your situation getting better, I think it's actually a pretty shallow hope. I don't think it will be enough to sustain. It's not the thing that keeps us going when things really get hard. Jeremiah says here, I was in a hard situation. Look what he says. Beginning in verse 19, chapter 3. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Tough times. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him to the one who seeks him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. For it is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Jeremiah says, Situation is going to be hard sometimes. Things are going to be tough. He does hope for things to get better. But ultimately he hopes because he has seen the love of his God. And he turns his face towards God and he sees him and he says, This God loves me. This God who is majestic and powerful and ruler over all creation also loves me. Loves his people. Cares about us. There's hope. I can keep on going. This Jesus who passes before us today in this story, this Jesus who passes before us, the Lord over all creation, everything in creation submits to him, bows before him. And he's one like us who's available and accessible and has chosen to make himself that way for us. Um, we ought to be singing Hosanna to him. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are that we have a God who saves who has saved us, continues to save us, and will save us. We are so thankful for your remarkable, unbelievable, unimaginable love for us um, that is beyond anything that we ever could have hoped for. Thank you, God, for the message of this story today, um, for this picture of who you are and who you are for us. In your blessed name, amen.